The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Friday, April 15th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Newly released emails between Senator Mike Lee and former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows do not look great for Lee. Eh, Meadows we already knew about. The former Samuel Alito Supreme Court clerk and assistant U.S. attorney, Lee demonstrates a knowledge of the law. And his conduct on the Judiciary Committee has been more distinguished than the more, oh, shall we say, ostentatious members of the Republican caucus. He has at least been trying to make solid arguments. Not the right argument, in my opinion, but solid ones. I mean, he did show up with a picture of Aquaman riding a seahorse on the floor of the Senate once to argue against the Green New Deal. But Lee seems to be in possession of more marbles than the generic Tea Party caucus member. Headline, Deseret News. Texts reveal how Mike Lee lobbied White House to overturn 2020 election. That is Lee's hometown Utah newspaper. Days after the election, Lee was forwarding right-wing media to Mark Meadows, suggesting, hey, this might have some ways that you could draw on to challenge the election results. Lee then grew frustrated. He needed more direction from the White House and texted on November 19th, give me something to work with. I just need to know what I should be saying and please tell me what I should be saying. That was the next day. Lee did suggest as a lawyer, Sidney Powell, unleash the crackpot. Soon realized that was a mistake. By December, his tone was of desperation. Quote, also, if you want senators to object, we need to hear from you on that. Ideally, getting some guidance on what arguments to raise. And I think we're now past the point where anyone can expect anyone will do it without some direction and a strong evidentiary argument. The reason there was no evidentiary argument in the offing is there was no evidence. And he saw that. He eventually came to see that. And unlike some less prudent senators who were going full speed ahead, Lee pulled back. Quote, this was right before January 6th. I have grave concerns with the way my friend Ted Cruz is going about this effort. This will not inure to the benefit of the president. And it did not. And it wouldn't have smeared Mike Lee either. He would have gotten away with it. If it weren't for those meddling rioters, and really, if the White House had just listened to Mike Lee, try, try hard, try in a way that I, Mike Pesca, not Lee, would define as unpatriotic and maybe even, oh, certainly unethical, maybe even illegal. But once it was determined that there was no evidence and it was going to work, you have to live with that. But because they couldn't, they went ahead with the rally, they went ahead with the speeches, they went ahead with the riot, they went ahead with the House Committee on the riot, they went ahead with subpoenas, and now they're going ahead and revealing these embarrassing emails and texts as written by Mike Lee. And Lee got so much wrong along the way, seeking to challenge the election was wrong. Wait, I'll even go back further. Voting and supporting Trump was wrong. But looking hard for election irregularities and continuing to look when they weren't present and attempting to craft a strategy around election irregularities in the absence of election irregularities. But at a certain point, Mike Lee stopped. He knew it was a losing cause and he didn't want to be implicated along with the other losers. 
Still, you can't totally dismiss this sentiment as expressed by Aaron Rupar. The Mike Lee texts are a reminder that elected Republicans broadly lined up behind and supported the effort to end democracy and install Trump in office. Returning them to power would be a disaster for the country. But unlike others, at a certain point, he stopped. He wasn't among the six senators who decided to and voted to overturn the election results. He pulled back because at a certain point he realized it was a losing cause, a fool's errand, and Mike Lee is no fool. Unfortunately for him, he had tied his fortunes to a ship of them. On the show today, it is an Antan twig. Lobstars will be awarded. But first, with the Fed raising rates to combat inflation, you could be forgiven for thinking, what took him so long in retrospect? All the good economists are saying, yeah, we should have done this a little while ago, like, I don't know, maybe six months ago, a year ago. Well, there is one voice on the Fed who is saying this for over a decade. The idea, the very idea that low interest rates were the friend of the unemployed, the enemy of the man, a generous and humane fiscal choice, that is the conventional or was the conventional wisdom. It all comes under the microscope of Christopher Leonard in his new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. I gotta say, it was really exciting for me to challenge my particular slice of conventional wisdom. Christopher Leonard up next. In the first hundred or so years of the Fed's existence, the Federal Reserve, they printed a little less than a trillion dollars. Then, from 2008 to 2014, the Fed printed $3.5 trillion. You'd think this would have an impact or an effect, and maybe if you follow the news, you know about it, and you know the phrase quantitative easing, but... How much do we really talk about it? And it seems to have all worked out. No, not really, says Christopher Leonard, the author of The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Perhaps you could tell from the subtitle what he thinks of quantitative easing and this era of 0% interest rates. I think we are reaping the whirlwind, or he thinks we are reaping the whirlwind to some extent right now. Christopher Leonard, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So your book, like some of the other great economic books that I've read, understands that the lay reader is not going to connect to a set of numbers or acronyms. You need a character. People relate to people, and you have found an interesting character in one of the members of the Federal Reserve, Thomas Honig. Tell me about him. So... He's a fascinating guy. And, and actually, I think Tom Honig's story really helps illuminate what we're trying to talk about here, which is what the Fed has done over the last decade. So Tom Honig was a senior official at the Federal Reserve, and he sat on the Fed's very powerful policy committee called the Federal Open Markets Committee or FOMC. And this is the committee that makes these key decisions about whether to lower or raise interest rates, how much money to print. And, and Honig is best remembered for uh, dissenting, for voting no uh, a, at, at every single meeting in the year 2010. 
And he's kind of remembered as this, uh, frankly, kind of remembered as a crank or a reflexive dissenter and this guy who's warning about hyperinflation, which which never emerged. But in, in fact, when you go back and look at the record, you see that this guy was making a very interesting critique in 2010. And, and the historical record bears out the fact that his warnings prove, proved accurate. And, and what he was saying back then, after, after the great financial crash, he was saying at the Fed, he was saying, look, we cannot go down this road that Ben Bernanke wants us to go down of pinning the, the central interest rate in our economy at zero, while at the same time creating all this new money through quantitative easing and pumping it into the banking system. He said that this would create massive asset bubbles. It would widen the divide between rich and poor. It would increase debt. And at the end of the day, it wasn't going to help the real economy that much. All of those warnings came true. So I I followed this very closely at the time, perhaps even reporting on it to some extent. And as it was reported, here were the contours of the argument. Honig, perhaps representing people who didn't have great purchase among the other members of the Fed, but uh, general economists out there who are always worried about inflation, currency inflation, that the value of the dollar would go down. And it was always portrayed as this guy Honig and people who are worried about inflation didn't want the value of the dollar to go down, and therefore they opposed these really low interest rates, whereas the doves, uh, Janice, Jen Yellen among them, and Ben Bernanke, thought that the risk of currency inflation wasn't so bad and that uh, low interest rates would spur more investment into the economy and therefore bring down unemployment, which was extremely important. And I was fascinated to find that the word inflation was tricking me or doing a lot of work because Honig wasn't so obsessed with currency inflation. He was obsessed with a different kind of inflation. Is that right? That I mean, if we could just take one thing away from this discussion, I think that that's it. And and you're exactly right. Let's put it this way. I think currency inflation is a great term for it. You also might call it price inflation when when prices rise for gasoline, food and, and cars. When we look back at the great inflation of the 1970s, everybody remembers the currency inflation or the price inflation, right? And the bread lines and the fuel lines and all that. But the the famous former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, at the time identified there were actually two kinds of inflation going on back then. You had currency inflation or price inflation, but then you had inflation of assets. And this is key. This is something key and important to remember. So an asset is anything you can buy that will hold or store value. A stock is an asset. Bonds are an asset. Real estate is an asset. And when the Federal Reserve keeps money too cheap for too long, it can stoke inflation for for prices, okay, for for bread and food, but it can stoke prices for assets because you've got all these dollars chasing assets and bidding up the prices. Now, now this is critically important because it traces back to why Thomas Honig really staked his career on stopping what the Fed was trying to do back in 2010. He said, where you're going to be stoking asset prices. You're going to create another round of asset inflation, which let's look back at what the Fed helped create in the 90s, a huge inflation in the dot-com market, in the stock market, in that asset world. During the 2000s, we saw a run-up or an inflation in home prices and real estate assets. And so what Honig was saying in 2010 was you're going to just drive up asset prices even further, which creates financial 
instability because these asset prices always correct downward to you know kind of converge with reality again but also it it, it stokes income inequality because you know the wealthiest 1% of everybody in America the wealthiest 1% of people owns about 40% of all the assets whereas the bottom half you know like that's I uh, roughly over 160 million people. They own only 5% of the assets. So when you're driving up asset prices, you're widening the gap between rich and poor and you're creating asset bubbles. So I, again, remember the coverage at the time and I remember the conventional wisdom and it went something like this. The concern over inflation, price inflation, was overblown, has been overblown for years, probably distorting our policies because something like rich people or hawks or people who just don't understand, maybe here's a phrase, neoliberals, people who just don't really sympathize with uh, the working class or poorer people and only care about the amount of money they hold. They're so obsessed with inflation and history has shown that they've got it wrong. Therefore, the people who weren't as obsessed with inflation, like Bernanke and Yellen, they got it mostly right. And this argument went, look, unemployment, it stayed higher uh, for longer than during most recessions, but it eventually came down. So, you know, not perfect, but we nailed it. What's wrong with that? So much. (laughs) <laughs> so much is wrong with that. Now, I, I, I want to... And, and am I saying it right? You have nailed it. That is the exact narrative to a T, and it's perfect. And and again, to rewind the clock to 2010, I, 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 I keep coming back to 2010 because this was a, a hinge moment in history. And this was, the, this was the first time really ever that the Federal Reserve said, we're going to keep our important interest rate at zero. They kept it at zero for seven years, by the way, radical departure from historical norms. While at the same time, the Fed is going to print money through this new program called quantitative easing, and the Fed's going to print money as a jobs program. Like like we're going to drive down the unemployment rate. That really had never happened before. Okay. And, And you're right that the debate at the time was around price inflation. It is correct to say price inflation never rose in the 2010s in this era of hyper easy money. And I'll tell you who was surprised more than anybody was the Federal Reserve itself. I went back and looked. Their forecasts were wrong year after year after year. They thought price inflation was going to hit 2% or higher and stay there and, 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 and even increase. It never did. But asset inflation, this is really important. Um, Asset inflation during the 2010s was in like runaway double digit increase mode. Okay. Yeah. This, and yeah. the story was always, you know, the economy is not going good, but somehow, somehow the stock market is. And then there'd be separate explanations for that. Uh, you know, knowledgeable people would say 0% interest rates or, you know, 1% interest rates certainly help and it encourages investment, but it was never fully explained like this was just the natural consequence of these decisions the Fed made. It was always explained by, you know, other reasons why, say, stock prices rise. The Fed was directly driving this, and the Fed knew it was directly driving this. The whole point of quantitative easing was that it would stoke asset prices. The Fed knew that that's how it was going to work, but the hope was that it would create the so-called wealth effect or that there'd be this sort of bleed over of economic growth after the asset prices rose so quickly. That 
part of it turned out to be very disappointing. But the part about stoking asset prices worked out quite well. All right. But big critics of Wall Street and the wealth being accumulated on Wall Street, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they weren't against what the Fed were doing. I never heard Elizabeth Warren come out and point to 0% interest rates as a driver of this. Were they, well, what's your assessment of that? Did they just not understand? Were they getting it wrong? What was going on? Look, my first and most important assessment is that you're exactly right. And I try to talk about this in the book that you know, goes without saying cliche, America is polarized, right? And 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 conservative and liberal people kind of writ large. Unfortunately, today, they kind of consume different media. They're in these different spheres of what they read and think about. The conservative movement going back many, many years, maybe decades, is, is more concerned with the Federal Reserve, just straight up audit the <laughs> Fed, disband the Fed, every yeah. evil in the world driven right. by the Fed. And, and, and the liberal community, particularly in the era of Obama, just didn't even talk about it. It wasn't featured. It wasn't on the radar. And I think maybe this traces back to a conservative skepticism about government intervention that doesn't exist on the side of the liberals. Maybe that helps explain it. I don't, I don't know why this is. Suffice it to say, the, the politics is bizarre in my mind. The Elizabeth Warrens, the Barack Obamas, the Joe Bidens, Go down the list. The liberal world is essentially embraces these policies of quantitative easing and zero percent interest rate. They see it as, I think, a liberal or progressive policy, whereas many of the critics are conservative. But what I well, well, let me just interrupt you because I. I think the explanation among the most progressive people would be like, well, Biden and Obama and Geithner and those guys, they're, they use the word neoliberal, it has almost no meaning, but they they are either tools of Wall Street or they're fans of Wall Street. They're very happy with Wall Street making a lot of money. And if some people pick up the crumbs, that's fine. But Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but especially Elizabeth Warren, that's opposite to her brand. And she's smart. She's a Harvard professor who understands, you know, taxes and finances and has written about bankruptcy. I really don't get if she was blind, if she was blinded by the politics or if something else was going on, or if you're wrong, there's another possibility. I'm stumped. I'm honestly stumped. You got me. Like, I don't know. And and to be honest, uh, you know, I interview a lot of senators and, and I just will say this, the response rate among Republicans to interview requests is much higher in this space. And I don't understand it. You're exactly correct. This critique of what the Fed has done doesn't emanate from the Warrens and Sanders of the world. As a report, by the way, when you were writing your Coke book, good response rate from the Democrats less than the Republicans, would you I'm, say? You know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. No, I just wanted my audience to know, like, you come from a very fair-minded world of covering the economy as it is, and your Coke book, you know, really laid into the Cokes. But please, proceed. Well, I, I look, I sincerely try. I feel like a reporter's job is to report. And that sounds like such a dumb thing to say, but like, I, I just want to say in this to get what we're talking about here in this space, when you talk about the Fed and what it's doing, there is an embrace of it among the establishment of the Democratic Party, if you will. I mean, Geithner is a great guy to bring up. Geithner, Obama, Larry Summers, uh, let's just go down the list. But when you look at the mechanics, the plumbing, the X's and O's of what the Federal Reserve does and how these policies are enacted, 
you see that it is a Wall Street first policy by its nature. The quantitative easing is a very complicated word for doing one thing, creating brand new dollars inside the bank accounts of 24 institutions on Wall Street. And that benefits the biggest of the big banks, the richest of the rich Americans, these kind of policy ideals that Warren uh, campaigns against every day, it seems. But uh, yeah, the, the, the critique of this stuff has not been robust at all on the left. Um, I want to ask you about the mechanics of information around the Fed. So they don't release their transcripts for five years. And the different members of the Fed, like your characters, are allowed to speak, but also sometimes they get chastised for having loose lips. Is the justification for keeping, I understand it could freak out the markets if we knew about all the details of their uh, decision making, but is there something about that that kept the American public too much in the dark about what was really going on? I love this question. I could talk about this for hours as a reporter. It's fascinating to me. Let me just say at the beginning, I gave leeway. I interviewed Jay Powell, um, John Williams, the president of the New York Fed, Lori Logan, who runs the trading desk at the Fed. And I gave them leeway. I said, look, I understand if you say a stray comment that is misinterpreted, it could cause markets to fall. That's the big thing, right? That is so misused by the Federal Reserve, this idea that like they have to be hyper, they control information. I wrote a book about Coke Industries. The, the Fed controls information more than any institution I've ever written about. And it's fascinating to me how they do it because they're kind of a quasi-public institution. Okay. Here's a great example. Like you said, the Fed's most important policy committee meets every six weeks, the FOMC. They have two-day-long meetings. They transcribe the whole meeting and they release the debates to the public. So you can see what they're doing but they release it on a five-year delay. <laughs> okay. And, and here's what I love about it. They release an entire year's meetings with all the supporting studies and documents and presentations in a day. <laughs> so you've got these poor reporters at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times given like, I think literally thousands of pages of documents for 2012, for example, and say, okay, find the news in there. Yeah. But doesn't, does some blame fall on Thomas Honig? I mean, he could talk publicly. He did give interviews. He could make his case. It didn't seem like he made it good enough. Okay. Great question. I, I, I would like to point out that this guy tanked his career. He gave a public interview to the Saturday interview of the Wall Street Journal. They run this big Saturday interview. And then he gave a public talk at the University of Kansas that was recorded and broadcast. And his language for a Fed official was incendiary. He called quantitative easing a deal with the devil. And, and, and the meeting, the book opens with where they vote on quantitative easing in 2010, it opens with Bernanke and Janet Yellen chastising him, not by name, but saying, hey, people here have been making these statements in the media, it's got to stop. So, so even what he did, honestly, marginalized this guy, tanked his career within the Fed, in my view. He was set to retire anyway, but like he was ostracized for doing what he did. But your point remains, even with that, you could argue he didn't make his case well enough. But you know, one thing I want to point out is when Honig was fighting this fight in 2010, he wasn't alone. Inside the Fed, 
I go again, this is what you get from the transcripts. There were four to five senior officials expressing intense reservations about taking this path. I mean, it was controversial inside the Fed. He was the only guy who actually voted against it. That that was the difference. He said no. Everybody else got, they went along with Bernanke's plan. Christopher Leonard is the author of The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Thank you so much, Christopher. Thank you. the spiel, or I could say, and now the Antan Twig. See, the intonation matched Antan Twig, a three-week period. We round up your interactions, your complaints, your tweets, your reddits. We're on Reddit now. It's r slash the gist or reddit slash r slash the gist. If you just do r slash the gist, you'll come to our reddit. I will read a piece of reddit information, but I will start with an email from Taylor Aiken. And to get there, I'll tell you about something that happened to me two days ago. I was on the subway and I was discussing with my seatmate, you know, the person I was sitting next to who I knew beforehand. I think we could call him a seatmate. Were we sharing a seat? Those are those little divots, you know, shaped to the sides of a person's posterior on the New York City subway. Talking about the book, Dennis Duncan's Index, a history of the, what a nice book, what a, I used the word and I used it with him, delightful. And upon pronouncing the book delightful, the young woman across from me said, he's my teacher. She was English. She uh, studies, what do they say? She reads literature in England and said, Duncan was a great professor. I love that. It brings me to Taylor Aiken, who writes in delightfully as well, that he liked Index and he points out that books take information and turn it into a story, an index takes the story and turns it back into information. That is nice, well done, symmetrical, chiasmatic even. And the reason I laid an abundance of that which was delightful upon you is now I get to something I said that I self-mortified. Joe Rickard was the first to point out that during an interview with Chuck Klosterman, I asked Chuck, what was the longest running sitcom in the 90s that aired entirely in the 90s that had the most episodes? And he thought and couldn't come up with it. And I told him what I thought was the right answer, coach. It was not coach. That was not a first class answer. I assigned myself to steerage for a couple of reasons. One being that coach started in February 1989. Joe said, I haven't done all the research. I think home improvement might be the answer. Brian Chris did all the research and he found out that home improvement was the answer. First episode, September 91. Last episode, May 99. Number of episodes, 204. Coach only had 200 episodes and a couple of them snuck into the late 80s. I really am sorry, especially when I conduct and construct a trivia question and I've gotten it wrong. I don't know. The uh, Just the walls of reality begin crumbling down. It seems like it's always me. Jeff Biebighauser writes in about not that thing, that stupid coach thing that I just said once, but a thing I say almost every day. Uh, I give the warning, the language warning before the show. Sometimes there's not even bad language. Maybe we should stop doing that. But one of my warnings is something like the following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. 
And, and I knew this was true. Jeff points out, I'm not really engaging in gerunds when I'm talking about that famously flexible grammatical F word. A gerund is like a swimming pool. That would be a gerund because the verb isn't acting as a verb. The verb is acting as a noun. Or even saying, you know, swimming is good exercise. That's a gerund. What I'm doing is engaging in a present active participle. So maybe I should re-record and say you are about to hear a four-letter word and a seven-letter present active participle. Or maybe I won't. I'll just let it go. Because, you know, it could be a gerund. I did reply to Jeff about how often the F word, you know, it's it's fucking. That, that's the word we're talking about. How, please, guys, play the warning before the show. He said after the warning was played 25 minutes ago or so. How the F word is usually not used as a gerund and not used as a verb. I did tell him that we have an upcoming guest, Christine Emba, and she wrote a book called Rethinking Sex, thus making her some sort of fucking pundit. I think it works on both levels. Gianmarco Morosini writes in to say, I am the proud owner of an Italian name. It is true. To recap, Gianmarco Morosini. He said he was surprised when he went to an Italian restaurant. You know, he takes a little pride in his Italian. He ordered an insalata con le pesce, and he expected a fish, fish salad, a lovely seafood salad. Instead, he got a plate full of peaches, mozzarella, and rocket leaves. Rocket leaves, I guess, is what we would call arugula. Yes, because pesca is peach. And therefore, he said, when I heard peach fish productions, it made me smile, remembering his horrible salad surprise. Thank you, Gianmarco Morosini. Got a email from Caleb Finsterwald of Amarillo, Texas. I should give the guy the lobster right now just for being Caleb Finsterwald of Amarillo, Texas. He's a 14-year police veteran. He liked the interview with DeRay McKesson, who's trying to reform police procedure. And he had nice things to say about McKesson, saying that he was operating in good faith, had interesting ideas. I take issue with several things he said during the interview, one of which I will speak to and speak he did. During the interview, McKesson, DeRay, pointed out that the felony uh, theft in New Jersey was $200. And with a felony comes the idea that police can use deadly force. And I said something like, oh, it's a license to kill. It's not true. That's not the case. And I should have remembered this. There's a famous Supreme Court case called Tennessee v. Garner. This is what we call the fleeing felon case. While true in common law, that a felony gives cops the ability to shoot to kill, not in the United States, not for the last 35, 37 years. There has to be a threat to the officer. You're correct. I should have said something different. Uh, I should have either corrected or sought clarification with McKesson, certainly not amplified him into a position of yes-anding my declaration that it's a license to kill. Barry Nailbuff, who wrote Split the Pie, writes in to say, ah, we got his title wrong at one point. He was not the CEO, never was, of Honest Tea. He was chairman of the board and a co-founder of Honest Tea. And then people wrote in about Barry Nailbuff, not saying that guy was never the CEO, saying, you know, good ideas. But didn't John Nash come up with this first? Yes, yes. The interview did not dwell on Nell Buff's debt to John Nash, but the book and much of his writing certainly presents Nash, the Nobel Prize winning genius who invented game theory, as being fundamental to developing Nell Buff's split the pie idea. John Nash, of course, a skinny mathematician, goes on to be played by an actor who plays the heavyweight champion of the world and Superman's father, Russell Crowe. The truth is that I... I don't like people much. 
and they don't much like me. Famous Russell Crowe fact, his middle name is Ira. Huh? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. It's one of the world's strangest Iras. When it's not where you'd expect an Ira to show up, right in the middle of Russell and Crow. And speaking of Crow, from Reddit, r slash Reddit, we just got into this within the last couple of weeks. Corey Wara, the producer, set it up. There aren't many posts there, but I will engage if you wish to discuss things on Reddit. Maybe not so much Facebook, a little more of Reddit. The Reddit comment was about me saying you'd have to wake up pretty early to fool me, earlier than the rooster. No, no, no. It was pointed out. Pesca comes from the city. Roosters crow late in the morning or even in the afternoon. So the mere sound of a cock crowing is not just positive evidence of an early hour. I'll say that next time I'm woken up. Oh, yeah. Ringo stars Richard Starkey. Not Richard Starsky. I had a hunch someone would correct me on that. Isaac Kaufman weighs in about Austin Hedges. He's one of the hundreds of Major League Baseball players as a catcher for the Cleveland Guardians. Runner goes, 3-2 pitch. Swing and a miss, throw from his knees. Oh, what a throw! They got him! Outstanding hose by Austin Hedges! Who make more money himself than the entire Supreme Court combined. The entire Supreme Court combined makes $2.48 million. It's actually $2,480,300. The uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts gets 12500 more than his fellow justices. But Kaufman points out that, you know, Austin Hedges paid more than the Supreme Court. He is currently, as of the time Kaufman tweeted at me, 0 for 13. I looked it up. As of last night, he's 0 for 16. So this brings us to a new segment. Who's having a better 2022, Austin Hedges or the entire Supreme Court of the United States? I mean, one day you could say, wow, that's Sam Alito. What a bad justice. Yes, but it's just a $285,000 cap hit. So arguing that Austin Hedges is having the worst year are his stats, a batting average of zero, a slugging percentage of zero. He did walk twice, get hit by a pitch, and scored two runs. Slider just wanted to give Hedges something to think about. Keep thinking. Strands the two-out walk. Bottom nine on the way. SCOTUS. Blocked one of Joe Biden's private sector vaccine mandates. Hedges blocked a wild pitch, but did let a couple get by. So far, it's early in the term, and we're waiting for their rulings on the Texas abortion clinics. I'm going to say that SCOTUS right now is having a better year than Austin Hedges. Austin Hedges can get out of his slump, can Clarence Thomas. And now, the lobster of the Antan Twig, the listener who interacted best, be it Twitter, Reddit, Facebook. I should give my Twitter address, but I won't. No, it's Pesca M-I. The show's is Pesca Gist. This came in via good old-fashioned email, the gist at mikepesca.com. Daniel Goodyear was talking about a conversation I had with John McWhorter. And I was saying that there is, I don't know if it's a trend, but it's a phenomenon that's being used for political purposes of totalizing speech. And the example that I gave, one of the examples was police started out as slave patrols. Is it true? Is it false? I guess each side of the argument can say, can make a claim to each because there are police departments that did start off as slave patrols. So police is a general idea in the United States. 
Many of them trace their roots, some of them, southern ones, trace their roots to slave patrols. Boston Police Department doesn't, NYPD doesn't, most of the northern ones don't. So is it true that police started out as slave patrols, or is it inaccurate? Here's another one. Democrats want to defund the police. Well, most don't, but that doesn't make it not true. And Daniel Goodhue talks about a specific example Two people are talking about politics and one doesn't know, doesn't get his uh, party straight. And that person says, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I even heard that Republicans want to defund the police. And the other person who knows a little bit more says, no, it's the Democrats who want to defund the police. Now, of course, the Democrats don't want to defund the police, but that's a natural thing to say. So therefore, we can't say it's inaccurate that when someone would say the Republicans want to defund the police, you would immediately say, no, Democrats do. And what we're engaging in, and this is why I want to thank Mr. Goodhue, is that we're engaging in something called generics. He says, generics don't mean some or all. They are used to state generalizations and generalizations can be slippery things. Dogs are mammals. Well, that's true, but dogs give live birth. Well, it's true with lady, not the tramp or ticks carry Lyme disease. I mean, they do. Some of them do. Most of them don't. Still, I'd be wary of ticks, and if we're talking about something more sensitive than ticks and carrying Lyme disease, you could see why people would take umbrage at the assertion, even though it was true. So often, the lobster of the antan twig is given for a reason quirky or a reason that in itself is something of a punchline, but this is just an honest-to-goodness, made-me-think email, taught me something. The gist can do nothing else. It's teach you something, and when I'm taught something by one of my listeners... Thinking a lobster, Daniel Goodyear, you're the lobster of the Antwentig. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the regional governor of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in conjunction with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. Oom Peru, Depp Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.